Well, Lord Moylan, thank you ever so much for agreeing to come on Rich Politics. You've got quite a long uh, CV and portfolio, if, I, if, I, if you don't mind me saying. I know that you were educated in St. Philip's School Grammar School in Edgebaston, which is where my wife is from. And you were president of the Oxford Union in 1978. Um, I was only three then. I don't mean to make you feel much older than you already are. Um, but one of the interesting things I found was that you secured Richard Nixon to come as a guest speaker. Um, can you tell me, I'm intrigued to know what, what he was like and what was said, and how did you manage to pull that off? Uh, well, um, these things only happen if, if the um, other party actually wants them to happen. And um, so Nixon himself was, um, had written his memoirs. Um, he had not appeared in public since Watergate. Mm. Um, he'd written his memoirs. Several years had passed. And he decided that there was an opportunity now to rehabilitate himself in a sense, that he had something to say, and he was looking for a platform. So this was a platform, a highly prestigious platform from his point of view, outside the United States. And um, the word got round that he was huh. looking for an opportunity. So, so we dived in uh, and, and we got him that. And it was a, a very exciting and interesting event. Um, and one of the highlights of my life in a way, actually. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. It must have been, of course, you've got many uh, highlights, I should imagine, over your career so far, but that must have been a very significant one for you because securing someone of his stature must have been something, you know, you, you were obviously the president of the Oxford Union at the time, but that must have been some scoop for you. Well, it certainly helped boost our membership figures that, um, <laughs> that, that year. We, we, we got a lot more members than we normally would have done. Um, so, yeah, no, it was quite a scoop. It had international press attention. One of the Difficulties was managing the the international press demand because normally an Oxford Union event you you don't get any press reporting at all except from one or two university newspapers and there you had people actually fighting we I had to get you we had to get used to the idea of pooled broadcasts and all sorts of things that you know at the age of twenty one or something you've never real you've no idea how the world of broadcasting works um, and of course people were very, journalists are very sharp elbowed about getting into something and, and so on. So there was a lot of sort of, a lot of management to go on and I, ne I needed a lot of help with all of that. Um, so yes, so it was a big international event and Nixon himself was absolutely fascinating. The yeah, I, I was, was gonna to say to you, did you actually get to speak to him personally or privately and you know, have some conversation uh, with him? Barely because, yeah. um, except for receiving him, no. I mean, essentially I think he's quite a shy man, hmm. uh, was quite a shy man, like a lot of people in, positions of power they're not so easy engaging on a sort of one-to-one -one level I mean there are exceptions like Clinton of course but then you never know how much of that is actually engagement and how much is artifice um, um, but 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 you can see the whole thing it's actually on um, the, the, the 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 Nixon library has put the whole thing um, onto the internet and you can watch the whole thing on YouTube it lasts about two hours and um, I have looked at bits of it um, occasionally, and Nixon is astonishingly impressive. Um, and the way he handles an audience, uh, of course, there's a demonstration going on outside. So that's the there's a big police operation yeah. and so on. There's a demonstration going on outside. So that's the constant mood music in the background. But he's, uh, he, he's also terribly funny. He's very good at handling a young audience. He's, 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 he's funnily self-deprecating. Mm. Um, and so on, but he's also, you can't ask him a question that he isn't on top of, I mean, especially on foreign affairs and so on. He's just extremely impressive in what he says. 
And I, I, anyway, I really think it's worth um, getting a snippet out of it, really, because as a, you get a sense of the manner of the man. And, and, and bear in mind, from a security point of view, uh, of course, the American Secret Service turned up at the Oxford Union at least three weeks in advance. And they were there the whole time because he had Secret Service protection all his life, uh, having been president. I mean, they were wonderful people, but also, I mean, I, I, I was extremely impressed by the US Secret Service. But they, um, um, you know, they were terribly anxious about the fact that uh, when they said how far back from the president, as they called it, <laughs> how far back from the president will the audience be? And I said, well, they'd be sitting around his feet. I mean, they took a lot of risks to let it all happen, actually. Is there anything that uh, Richard Nixon said that left an impression with you as a young 21-year-old? Can you think of anything that really lasts in your mind, something he said? Well, the, the most important question, the most sort of, in a sense, the, the question everyone was waiting for was, <laughs> was something about Watergate. Yeah, of course. And, 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 and being a highly sophisticated and respectable audience, the question wasn't asked in, in a direct way. It was asked <laughs> in a roundabout way, but he, he picked it up immediately. And I thought, uh, and he had an answer to it, which was, he simply said, it was obviously, it was a carefully thought out rehearsed answer, which is, he simply said four words. He said, yeah, he said, I screwed it up. <laughs> and I thought, now that's, that is really interesting because of course that sounds like an admission. Yes. Uh, but actually it's only an admission to error. Of to course. miscalculation, to, we all make mistakes, you know, fine. You admit to a mistake. Even presidents of the United States make mistakes. Mm. That doesn't make you a bad person. That doesn't mean you've done something wrong. So I thought it was really very carefully done that there was here what sounded like an admission, but of course was not an admission of guilt. So it's very good of, of doing anything wrong. It's just an admission to a mistake. And, and I thought that was very deftly handled, uh, almost beautifully done. And that almost dealt with the question because once a guy's admitted he's screwed up, then what else you got to say? Yeah, you did. Yeah, okay. Well, let's move on. Let's talk about something else. Well, I, well, I think I, just I think, in, as a technique, I thought that was hugely impressive. I was going to say, I think some of our modern day politicians could learn a thing or two from that. Um, moving on a little bit, then, Lord Moylan, you. Uh, was not just the president of the Oxford Union, but you went on to the Foreign Commonwealth Office in 1978 of December, I believe it was. And you did you learn Afrikaans language? Did you actually learn it? Well, I was sent to, we say, did you actually learn it? Like it was the most difficult thing in the world. Um, <laughs> well, it would, be, um, it would be to a Welshman, I can assure you. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Um, the, um, uh, it, it is true that after a year working in London uh, in the Foreign Office as a junior trainee, I was sent to work in the British Embassy in South Africa. And um, although we didn't have student loans in those days, um, I did leave university with debts. And I was a desperate overdrafts. And I was desperate to pay off these wretched overdrafts. And the Foreign Office used to pay you more if you learned the local language. After all, that's a good thing from the point of view of being a, a diplomat in a foreign country. So you get a supplement for passing exams in a local language. Well, I studied German at university, so learning Afrikaans. And they paid for the lessons. Because um, this is all good. This is what the Foreign Office should be doing. We'd all mm. agree on that. You know, you know, if you go and you're going to be a diplomat in... British diplomat in, in Spain, it's good that you speak Spanish. Um, and, and, and so that's all right. But I, I, I wanted to learn Afrikaans mainly because I wanted the extra money. So I, I went straight through um, uh, and then uh, and I said, 
passed the medium examination. There are three tiers of exams, and the higher the exam, the more money you got. And then I said, well, I'd now like to take the higher exam. And of course, they had, they, they, they had to admit that they'd never actually set the higher exam ever. So they'd have to set this exam specially for me. But they couldn't say no, because, of course, they were caught up in their own personnel management rhetoric about yes. how important it was to learn languages. So I sort of forced them to learn to set the higher Afrikaans examination, which I passed. Um, and, and thus became, for a period, until a colleague emulated me, um, the most qualified speaker of Afrikaans in the history of British diplomacy, and with the certificate to prove it. Well, well, that's quite significant. So, yeah, yeah go, go in, moving things on then, Lord Moylan. Um, I know that you worked alongside uh, the Prime Minister now, Boris Johnson. Uh, you were yes. quite instrumental in a lot of the changes in London. Of course, East London as well, a big part of it. And you've always been passionate about London, infrastructure and transport, the econ uh, the environment. Lots of things that you've, I've noted you've been involved in. Um, firstly, um, of course, we, we know that Sadiq Khan is under huge criticism for... Uh, allegedly bankrupting the transport for London and everything else at the moment. Um, before we get to Sadiq Khan, I want to ask you about him and the mayor elections next year. I wonder what it was like working alongside Boris Johnson at that time when so much was being done, and you were very instrumental in that, uh, in his work in London as mayor. Well, it's not like what people sort of think, because Boris has a sense of humour and likes to tell jokes. Uh, people sort of imagine that when he's in his office and people go and see him and you have meetings, that you spend all your time slapping your thighs and rolling about in laughter. In fact, he's mm. quite, he, he, is, he is a tough and quite hard-driving boss. And he, contrary to the impression he leaves with people, he is actually one of the hardest-working people I know. Mm. Um, he's an extremely early riser. He's working early in the morning. Um, and, and he's really working the whole of the day. And um, so working for him is, is jolly hard work. He's, he's quite demanding. When I say demanding, he's also uh, a very polite person. Mm. Um, so I don't, by demanding, I don't mean he goes around um, shouting or ranting or whatever. Yeah. In fact, uh, sometimes I think a little bit more shouting and ranting would be a good thing. Uh, and he'd get where he wanted. He's very polite in his manner, but he really does drive and, and, and insist on for example, on the delivery of his manifesto, his, mm. his first manifesto as mayor, um, he was constantly chasing you about things in the manifesto mm. to find out why they weren't being delivered and so on. Uh, and so that got people focused on that, got them moving. They realised that's what Boris wants. That's what we're going to do. He's the mayor. He's entitled to get his manifesto delivered. And so you push on with things like that. So it's really quite a serious business working for Boris. Yeah, he he always seems to acknowledge the work that he did as mayor and he praises himself for it and i think rightly so he did a lot of good things for london um, he was always ambitious to be prime minister we're led to believe did you sense that when when he was the mayor of london that he had ambitions to, to lead our country as the prime minister well it depends what you mean by ambitions you know there's one model of ambition which is characterized by michael heseltine when he was a young man where apparently he plotted out his future career and how he'd, each step and each, each year and what he'd do in what order in order to become prime minister. <laughs> um, uh, Boris isn't like that at all. I think Boris is uh, much more of the sort of person who, who thinks, well, um, um, I'll take my opportunities as they arise. I've got a sense of where I want to go. 
but I also realize that I won't be able to predict what the path is. Um, and I also realize that at that level, if, if you see what I mean, I may not get it at all because mm. the, the, the stars might not, the constellations might not come together in quite the right way. So it's not ambitious in that Michael Heseltine sense of planning it all out and that's all he thinks about. But yes, I think he was alert to the fact that um, the opportunity could arise and, and he would want to seize it if he could. Certainly, and um, I, I'm... I use a rugby phrase, by the way. I say this. Yeah. Um, the, the fact that you obviously may, as, as, as a Welshman, may be interested in rugby. <laughs> but he used the phrase in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an interview once. Um, he said, when they said, would you be interested in being prime minister? And he said, well, if the ball came loose from the scrum. <laughs> now, that, I think, is, is, was a genuinely personal revealing comment about how Boris thought about this. It's, yeah, you're in the game, uh, you want to win, but the ball might not come loose from the scrum. But if it does come loose from the scrum, you're going to grab it and run with it. You see, that's it's that. It's not. It's it's much more a game of rugby than pl plotting out your. Uh, it's your it's, life it, it's more than. It seems more of an opportunity than ambition. Well, of course, that scrum ball yeah. did come out of the scrum uh, under yeah. Theresa May, um, <laughs> given the, her withdrawal it agreement did. and everything it else. Certainly, and, it certainly did. Uh, <laughs> so we won't go there today, but uh, another time maybe, Lord Moylan. Um, of course, we've got the mayor elections coming up next year in May. Um, of course, for us who live outside of the London bubble, if you like, you're in the regions or different parts of the UK, the northeast in particular and other places, there's been some political shift and change, as we've seen, uh, from the last election we had in December, uh, with giving Boris an 80-seat majority, the red wall turning Tory. I just wonder if what is happening in London right now under Sadiq Khan is a good thing, because, as I've said, outside of the London bubble, we have the impression, or certainly I, I'm led to believe, that he's not doing a very good job. <laughs> not just from what we see on the media, but from our own research, my own personal research. It seems as if Sadiq Khan is out of touch with the people of London. And I, th I wonder what you think about the mayor elections next year, in particular Sadiq Khan's premiership as the mayor of London. Well, I'd rather look at it in the context of the fact we've had three mayors now. And uh, irrespective of party, um, you, you have to give great credit to Ken Livingstone mm. uh, because Ken Livingstone had leadership qualities and he, he would have, uh, he also created the mayoralty. Remember the mayoralty started as an, in an act of parliament. Now an act of parliament's a dead letter. It's just, it's just pages. You have to give it life through what you do. And, 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 and he did that partly by pushing boundaries, partly by saying, if I, I'll do this and see who stops me and so on. And, but he was out there. And, and when the uh, bombs went off on the tube, I mean, Ken was, you know, the, 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 he fulfilled some sense of speaking for London. And then you had Boris, who also was a very active mayor and who was out there doing things. And the main impression I have of Khan, and it's nothing to do with party, mm. is that he doesn't do anything at all. It's not he's doing a bad job, he's doing no job. He just, uh, he just whinges the whole time about the government and why he's not allowed to do his job. You couldn't have imagined Ken Livingstone doing that. And I think in that sense, he's been a terrible disappointment during the pandemic. The pandemic has really tested him as, um, as uh, tested his leadership qualities. Mm. And he hasn't led at all. I mean, he just runs around um, giving contradictory uh, prescriptions for what the government should do. But he himself has done nothing. He hasn't in any sense been a figurehead for London um, or some, some some sense of representing the city in its in its disaster. He's just been a 
a gadfly, he'll probably still win and have another four years of the same. But I think that does actually then start to call the question of the mayoralty into, into um, existence because fundamentally devolved government has to deliver. And if it doesn't deliver, it gets its money taken away. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we, we face the same problem with the Welsh government. We shan't go into that today, but maybe... No, well, we've, all, we've all got to learn the... got become familiar with the, the dual um, features of your... Of yeah, well, of course. Well, you know, we during Wales, we, the devolved administrations do exactly the same as the, the mayor of London. They just keep pointing the finger to Westminster, asking, you know, yeah. saying we don't get enough money. I mean, they've been given an extra over five billion pounds here for the pandemic over the Barney formula they already get. And and they've held some of that money back and it, they always seem to blame Westminster. And it becomes it we're getting to the point during Wales, certainly, where what we're seeing is now that if we're not careful, we are sleepwalking towards independence. Um, and it's quite a worrying trend that we're seeing. This this, tra- this direction of travel that devolution is taking us to, is uh, is supported by a lot of nationalists who are quite determined to see Wales break away from the union, which I think personally would be a devastation for Wales. It'd be, it'd be fiscally, it'd be, it'd be financially suicide, financial suicide in my opinion. Uh, not just that as well. You know, this this long age union of the United Kingdom, the idea of it breaking up along with the SNP as well. I think it would be a tragedy for the people and citizens of the United Kingdom. And I'm a Welshman and I'm British and I'm proud of it. So <laughs> that's that's my position certainly. Well, speaking about Westminster, of course we. Uh, hot on the subject uh, that this last few weeks has been the internal market bill. I know that you've been playing your part in the House of Lords and you spoke just recently on that in defence of the UK government um, and you are supportive of it. The the criticisms, of course, that many of those opposed to these changes is, of course, the EU itself threatening legal action, firstly, and secondly, those in devolved administrations claiming this as a power grab by Westminster. What would you say to them? Well, I, I think what I've really realised over the last few weeks, and it's come as a bit of a shock to me, um, is that the, the, many of the people in the House of Lords, and indeed in the Commentariat generally, mm. no longer believe in the United Kingdom as a thing. I don't mean to say they don't believe in it. You know, do you believe in the United Kingdom versus the EU or something like that? Mm. I don't mean that. Um, so when you listen to these people in the House of Lords talking about... Um, those parts of the bill which reassign and assign, well, not reassign, assign EU functions between the different layers of government in the UK, because we're getting all these powers back. So who's going to exercise them? The devolved administration should exercise some of them. The UK should exercise another. But they talk about what they call the devolution settlement. Mm. It's not a settlement at all. Anyone can see that. It's the most unsettling thing that's ever happened. There's been no, there's no settlement. It's, 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 it's produced nothing but instability, actually, and it's getting worse. They talk about the devolution settlement and the Sewell Convention as if these were the sort of the foundational principles of our constitution. And whereas I, what I want to say is, no, actually, we're, the United Kingdom is the foundational principle of our constitution. And you must have some notion of what role the United Kingdom has in all of this. And they say, ah, oh, well, the United Kingdom, that's just England and the English Parliament. Well, it's not, because even at the Westminster Parliament, there are different voting, different constituencies, in effect, for voting on different measures and so on. So the question, you know, should Westminster be allowed ever to legislate on a matter for Scotland, for example, which is a devolved matter? Yeah, of course they should. 
without the without Scotland's agreement. Uh, of course they should, because otherwise you're not in a United Kingdom anymore. You've already achieved effectively a form of federalism of independent countries. Now that may be your goal, that may be where you're going, but that's that is not what people have voted for. That is not the legal position. That is not the situ constitutional situation. So if that's what you think you're in, you've got there without anybody's approval. So let's roll back on that and remember that the foundational principle here is that we are one United Kingdom. And, and there is there are powers devolved, that's an important word, they are devolved, they are handed down, they are not there of right. There are powers devolved in different ways. And on occasion, it'll be appropriate for them to be taken back by the United Kingdom, especially when you're getting a big change happening at the moment, like the European Union. But these people have forgotten all that, but they're sitting there in the House of Lords. They're not nationalists. These are not people who are advocating independence. They're not Scots Nats. There are no Scots Nats, as it happens in the House of Lords, because they don't nominate people. Uh, there are some plight Cymru, but there are no um, Scots Nats. Uh, these are not nationalists. These are high court judges and people who, if you ask them, would say, oh, yes, I really want to preserve the United Kingdom. Look, mate, you've completely forgotten <laughs> what the United Kingdom is, is what I want to say to them. Yeah. I think what we, what we've seen uh, in in our media down here, Welsh media, of course, slightly different to the, the rest of the UK. Sometimes is there is this propensity to talk about how Westminster is interfering in devolved matters. For example, the Internal Market Bill, taking those powers from the EU and then investing them, of course, now in in the UK government on things such as infrastructure, um, things like the M4 relief fraud here in Wales was a big uh, controversial aspect because Welsh Labour promised in their manifesto to build it. Now they've gone back on that um, for environmental reasons, according to them, costing the taxpayer millions of pounds. Um, and they they are they have this kind of rhetoric that says, well, you know, this is these these non-devolved areas. Why is it the UK government has the power to invest in Wales, which I find completely ridiculous because any devolved administration or, or any nation within the United Kingdom, Wales in particular, that can get any investment from Westminster, we should be welcoming that investment. Not not saying, well, you know, who's in charge of it. I find it absolutely absurd. But I wonder what you think about the uh, the relationship with uh, Northern Ireland over the Internal Market Bill. Of course, we know Joe Biden has chipped in on this uh, argument as well. We've seen some of the US politics. Nancy Pelosi has commented on it, talking about the Internal Market Bill and our relationship with the EU. If we leave with no deal, that's the issue, really. I mean, what do you think it means for the UK to leave with no deal if we do and do you think trading under WTO terms would be a good thing for our country? Well, I think we have to see what the deal, if they secure a deal, we have to see what it says before you can decide whether no deal is better than the deal that's been negotiated. But it's not looking promising, either that there'll be a deal or that it'll be one acceptable to the United Kingdom, because at the moment, the European Union appears to be saying, you know, either you visibly give in and humiliate yourself and we win the points, um, or there's no deal. And I don't see why the British government or Britain as a country should put up with that. Um, the difference between a deal and no deal is, is, is quite small, actually, mm. because the deal itself only covers tariffs. So there would be some tariffs to pay, and, and that will affect some sectors more than others. It will affect agriculture and motor industry more than it will many others. In many other cases, uh, the, the effect will be quite small. The, the effects of filling in forms and, and customs declarations will be bigger, but that'll be happening anyway, whether you have a deal or no deal. So I, I don't think that's the big difference. 
as far as Northern Ireland is concerned, we, we've made, um, it, it, it's, what we've effectively done, whether you think this is right or not, is we've effectively agreed to place part of the United Kingdom under the colonial administration of a foreign power. And I say colonial because the, the people of Northern Ireland will no longer have any representation in the bodies that make a large part of their laws. That would be the laws covering nearly every aspect of their economy, which is, of course, quite a, a big thing in, 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 in the life of, the, of, of any community. Uh, controlling the economy covers an awful lot of life. Um, uh, they're still, of course, in, 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 in largely non-economic matters, they will still have the existing arrangements. And they will have no representation in that at all. It's the only part of Europe which we are actively de-democratizing mm. at the moment. Um, and indeed, I would suggest we're creating a situation which is contrary to the European Convention on Human Rights, which guarantees that people should have a say in the legislatures which make their laws. So you, 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 would, you would say that... We are de-democratising Northern yeah. Ireland. So you would say that as opposed to, we're not breaking international law, what this is, is the EU trying to keep power within Northern Ireland, to keep them within the, the, the current arrangements. Is that what you're saying? Well, it's true also that we've collaborated in it, and we sit there in the House of Lords passing minor statutory instruments, because there are lots of secondary tech laws yeah. which cover little bits of little bits of little bits of the way regulations work. So we get a whole stream of them. Um, and then they're effectively creating bricks in a wall that keeps Northern Ireland economically inside the European Union, subject to laws in which it has no say. Yes, I, we, I mean, it's until we know what is going to happen, deal or no deal, um, and David Frost is negotiating out there. We're not sure exactly how things are going to play out. Um, uh, Lord Moylan, our time is almost up. It's nearly 30 minutes. Um, but sure. before we go, one or two more things. Firstly, I'd like to ask you, what is the most significant contribution? It might be hard for you to tell me this. What do you think is the most significant contribution you've made so far in your career uh, within politics or even outside of politics? Well, now, that's a, that's a question you've given me no notice of. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'd like to say that I'm, uh, my hesitation is that I'm, I'm contemplating a very long list um, <laughs> of, 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 of exceptional achievements, and I'm trying to select... Um, one uh, from it. Um, uh, but the truth is that most politicians have uh, very little they can point to as an achievement and very little by way of a legacy. And I think if you were to look at, um, look at it in terms of legacy, one of the things I'm still proudest of mm. um, is reshaping and rebuilding Exhibition Road in Kensington um, um, as um, from what had previously been a car-dominated um, parking lot that, se that separated the great institutions there, the Natural History Museum, the Science Museum, the Victoria and Albert Museum, and there are many others, and turning it into a much more attractive space, a shared space, um, that still attracts an awful lot of attacks from the, from the bicycle mad people who want it all. <laughs> um, but otherwise has been hugely successful. And um, I think that would be the sort of legacy and I know it's going to be a legacy because I know they won't be able to afford to dig it up for another 50 or 60 years so, <laughs> so it's stuck there simply because the cost of, of digging it up would be more than the councils could afford. Ah. Well, Lord Moylan thank you ever so much for being on Rich Politics tonight I really appreciate it on your time as well. Uh, yeah. One final one one final question I'll let you just finish the, the interview off. Um, what is next for Lord Moylan? Oh I'm just going to settle down you know Disraeli when he was asked about <laughs> what it was like at the later in his life when he went into the House of Lords. 
what it was like um, uh, being in the House of Lords. And he said, it's like you are dead. He said, dead, but in the Elysian fields. <laughs> uh, so I should just wander off now into the Elysian fields and, uh, and enjoy myself there before. Uh, for as long as the House of Lords will have me, or the British people will have me, and, and indeed for as long as the British people will have the House of Lords. Well, I've been glad to have you on. It's been an Thank absolute you. pleasure. It's been a delight. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank and of course, I hope to get you back on on another episode of Rich Politics. Thank you, Lord, Lord Moylan. Thank you very much, Richard. Cheers. Mm-hmm.